National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a great show for you today. Our topic is Saudi Arabia. Uh, generally speaking, we usually tap into the academic community for commentary on our, on our national security topics. Sometimes we may have someone from, uh, from the U.S. government or the military or their intelligence community on for, for a discussion. Today we will speak with Fahad Nazar. Mr. Nazar is a spokesperson for the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., so we're going straight to the source to learn about Saudi Arabia today. A little more about our guest. Fahad Nazar was appointed to this role as spokesperson on January 18th of 2019. Uh, prior to this appointment, Mr. Nazar was a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, D.C., and served as an international fellow at the, uh, at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Additionally, he, he was also a columnist for the daily newspaper Arab News. Uh, his publications have also appeared in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, CNN, uh, foreign Policy, Yale Global Online, The National Interest, and on in Newsweek. Fahad Nazar earned his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from New York University and a Master of Arts in Political Science uh, from St. John's University in New York City. He was also He's also completed the credit and examination requirements for a doctorate program in Political Science at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Fahad Nazar, welcome to National Security This Week. Hi, good morning, John. It's good to be with you. And where are you at this morning? You and I are sitting on Zoom, so we can have a face-to-face -face conversation, but where are you? I am in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. All right. Getting ready to head into office after, into the office after our uh, discussion this morning, I take it? Indeed, yeah. We've been going in uh, for well over a year now, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, doing it from home for the time being. All right. Uh, generally, I like to cover a little bit of uh, background on my guests before I get into the core of the topic. Uh, you've been a well-published author on many important topics. You're also on your way toward finishing that doctorate in political science. Uh, I'd like to focus most of our conversation this morning on Saudi Arabia's role in the region, uh, as well as a, as a major economic player when it comes to energy. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to cover some internal politics, economics, and security issues for the kingdom. Uh, let me ask you this. Your career in journalism, uh, what brought you into this uh, world of foreign policy, foreign affairs? Uh, why was that of personal interest to you? Right. So I actually studied political science. I mean, that's what I majored in uh, as an undergrad. That's what I majored in in, uh, in graduate school as well. But what brought me to the, this privileged position that I'm in is uh, no, my late father was a career diplomat, so we, uh, I was actually born in Paris, France. And over the years, I observed my father as he uh, worked as a diplomat in a number of countries. I also attended the United Nations International School in New York. That's where I got my high school degree. So in some ways, and I certainly hope that's the case, that uh, this is a natural fit for me. And uh, so I've been around diplomats my entire life. And uh, I think I've made the, the right choice, and I hope I'm, I'm doing a decent job of uh, 
representing the embassy in Saudi Arabia here in the United States. All right. Uh, so if we could, uh, Fahad, I'd, I'd like to start with the political system inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, everybody knows it's a kingdom, but could you explain to our listeners how the governance system works in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Right. So uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia is is a monarchy. Obviously, uh, it is under the leadership of uh, the custodian of the two holy mosques, uh, King uh, Salman. And uh, we do have a, a crown prince who is also prime minister now. So uh, in addition to that, um, we have a council of ministers. And that is basically the equivalent of a, of a cabinet that's made up of 23 or 24 different uh, ministries. We also have a consultative Shura Council that represents every region, every city, and every sector of Saudi society. Um, that body actually can um, bring up legislation, it discusses uh, legislation, but ultimately these decisions are approved by the, uh, by the king and the crown prince and the council of ministers. So our institutions, our political institutions, like every institution and everything in the kingdom, have evolved over the years. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the um, Shura Council, this consultative body. When this was formed back in 1993, it only had 60 members uh, and no women. Now it has 150 members, including 30 female members. So our institutions are evolving to make sure that they meet the needs of the population, which has grown significantly over the past few decades. Uh, what, what roughly is the population in Saudi Arabia? So we just crossed uh, 35 million people. Um, back in 1970, we had all of 5 million. So the growth has been rapid and, uh, you know, we've... Uh, we're very well aware of it. So the country looks and, and feels and, and sounds very different than it did, uh, you know, when I was growing up, that's for sure. So that, that population growth, uh, I mean, that's an incredible population growth. I have to imagine a high percentage of your population are, are, are young people under the age of 35. Indeed, that's uh, very good. So it's about 70% is under the age of 35. And that's why back in two uh 2016 his royal highness the crown prince mohammed bin salman unveiled a broad package of economic and social reforms that we call vision 2030 its ultimate goal is the is to diversify our economy so that we are no longer as reliant as we have been in the past on oil revenues so again that model uh worked for us pretty well back in 1970 when we had five million people it is not sustainable it's not a very viable economic model for development, uh, to be honest, going forward. So we are now we will continue to produce crude oil, uh, but we are expanding beyond that. So we no longer think of ourselves as simply producer of crude, mm -hmm. but we are beginning to produce uh, renewable energy. We're investing a lot of resources in that. We are exploring and uh, developing our natural gas as well, but also, you know, developing beyond uh, the energy sector. We're investing into IT, housing, logistics, entertainment, and tourism. We have essentially created an entertainment and tourism sector from scratch just in the last few years. Uh, could, could you talk a little bit more about the, the economics in, in the kingdom? Uh, I, I, the, this, the Saudi Green Initiative, I've seen writing on that. I, I've seen this Vision 2030 in writing. 
Uh, maybe you could go into more detail on Vision 2030 for us, uh, explain to our listeners what that is. Right. So as I said, it's, it's a broad package of economic and social reforms. It was unveiled in uh, 2016 by His Royal Highness the Crown Prince. And, and again, the ultimate objective is to reduce the kingdom's economy's uh, reliance on oil revenues by empowering the private sector so it becomes the engine of the economy. So it has put the development of a number of sectors at, at the core of, of uh, this transformation. So we're talking about you know, mining, information technology, like I said, tourism, renewable energy, entertainment, uh, even logistics. I mean, people, you know, overlooked for years that Saudi Arabia geographically is uh, strategically located basically at the crossroads of three continents. So we are investing and turning uh, the uh, kingdom into a global logistical hub. Uh, at the same time, we've realized again uh, when we unveiled the vision back in, in 2016 that Saudi Arabia does have the potential to become a global tourist destination we have not only do we have uh, there's an Islamic history there but there's you know pre-islamic sites uh, a number of which have been recognized by UNESCO as a world heritage site I think the most famous of which is uh, Al-Ula which is in the northwest of Saudi Arabia and it is the uh, it's a same civilization that built Petra in uh, Jordan. Mm. So we uh, believe that you know tourists who come to Saudi Arabia, and I see tourists. I've, I have the the privilege really of accompanying a number of uh, American delegations visiting the kingdom uh, about three or four times a year. Every time I go back, I see more and more tourists. So we believe that we have a, a unique mix of uh, interesting, rich history. We have some very unique and uh, exciting new projects that are currently underway. And I think just as importantly, we have a very warm and welcoming people. So uh, by and large, Americans that I've spoken to have who have visited Saudi Arabia, especially recently, do leave with a fairly favorable impression of the country and what's happening there. Yeah. Uh, are you, are you uh, expanding into the medical sector as well? Right. I mean, uh, of course. And, and, you know, when it comes to healthcare, I think healthcare, much like, you know, education reform, I mean, healthcare reform is always a work in progress uh, by definition, <laughs> in the sense that you can always do better. But uh, absolutely. And we, again, we've invested as part of Vision 2030, we have digitized a lot of our government services, including our healthcare. And that really paid dividends during COVID 19. Mm. So we were able to. Uh, contact trace for for one uh, very effectively. So you know, three years after the the start of the pandemic, we've had less than nine thousand deaths uh, again in a population of thirty five million. Wow, um, that's that's not bad. We were able to contain the spread of the disease not just um, in the kingdom, but we even one of the many important but difficult measures that we had to take. We even suspended visits to our holy sites in Mecca and Medina mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, the uh, the pandemic does not spread more globally. Because, as you know, the Muslims visit our holy sites throughout the year, um, literally in the millions. And we just thought that the risk to public health internationally was too great to uh, not to suspend visitations. Now they're back open and. Um, you know, but the investments we made in healthcare really helped us, um, you know, address vision, uh, address the pandemic, and I think we've done a pretty good job overall. 
And how about the the financial sector? I, I know that uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, to, uh, uh, on your border they, they are a pretty <laughs> pretty heavy uh, financial center on a global scale. Uh, is Saudi Arabia investing into uh, into the financial sector as well? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the Arab world's biggest economy. It is the only Arab nation that is a member of the G20 um, uh, group of nations. And, uh, you know, our economy is continuing to expand uh, through Vision 2030. So, as I said, all of these sectors that we are uh, investing in, and, um, you know, I, I think there's an awareness, not just among uh, American businesses, but business leaders around the world that the opportunities in Saudi Arabia right now for foreign businesses, for foreign companies, for foreign investors are maybe, you know, unrivaled anywhere else in the world. Last year, I attended, uh, it's an annual conference that we call the Future in Investment Initiative. And basically, it's a gathering of business leaders from all over the world to come and to uh, debate and, and talk about the uh, challenges to the international community, but also the opportunities. And year in, year out, there are dozens and dozens of American companies. And, and this is, a th I mean, I can't emphasize this enough. Our relationship with the United States goes back 80 years. There are some companies, American companies like Bechtel, for instance, that have been in Saudi Arabia for almost 100 years at this point. Mm. There is a level of trust and familiarity uh, with Americans in general, but certainly American companies. Uh, they've done great work in Saudi Arabia going back decades. They've helped us you know, from, uh, from the beginning as we developed over the years. And now we are, as we're again diversifying our economy, we're establishing newer relations with uh, some American companies that are at the forefront of some of the, uh, you know, the newer industries that uh, that uh, kind of define the global economy today. Like the, like the tech industry, I would assume. Exactly. Uh, tech industry is uh, at the forefront. Um, you know, fintech, uh, medical uh, technology uh, companies, uh, companies related to uh, or that are in the field of uh, Renewable energy, like I said, we're investing billions in uh, solar energy, in uh, wind. We are beginning to produce and export a new source of a new fuel known as uh, green hydrogen. I believe mm. that we've already exported some shipments to both South Korea and Japan. At the same time, we are also making sure that our hydrocarbons are as clean uh, as possible. So we've adopted what we call the circular carbon economy. And there are four R's to this. I usually forget one, but hopefully not. So it's uh, the effort basically is employing various technologies to make sure that we reuse, recycle, um, repurpose, and remove carbon emissions uh, to as much as possible. So we are investing in carbon sequestration uh, technology and carbon capture technologies where, again, the emissions certainly for um, you know, companies and uh, factories, the emissions are captured right from the air. There are some vehicles that are being uh, in developed now and are in use, where again, the carbon is captured uh, right as it's emitted from, uh, from the vehicles. So we're working on multiple tracks when it comes to energy. We're continuing to produce our hydrocarbons because we have a comparative advantage when it comes to producing them. Obviously, there's still global demand for crude oil, but we are 
making sure that it's uh, as clean as possible going forward. Yeah, and I, and I have to, I'm just going to comment on this if I could. So Saudi Arabia has traditionally been uh, a, a core hub of oil and gas production. Uh, we know on a global scale we have to dramatically reduce our use of uh, fossil fuels uh, across the board for essentially survival of humankind. Uh, and the diversification of your economy is that designed to provide dramatically different revenue streams, uh, keep the standard of living really high for everybody who's living in Saudi Arabia? Is that sort of the strategic approach here? Absolutely, yeah. And if I could just uh, just go back uh, and talk about climate change. And I mean, Saudi Arabia is committed to uh, sustainable development. We do take the threat from climate change very seriously. And as you already mentioned, last year we announced what we call the Saudi Green Initiative and a related Middle East Green Initiative. And basically this is a blueprint for how to uh, how we're addressing the impact of climate change. We have a number of initiatives. One of them is obviously investing in renewable uh, energy, but we also we believe that uh, we have those technologies and the information here, sharing of information and technology, uh, not just obviously inside the kingdom, but also with our neighbors is the key to addressing some of the, the impact of climate change. I mean, the Middle East does face serious th threats, including desertification, um, you know, water shortages, uh, some inclement weather patterns uh, in recent years. So. You know, climate change, environmental degradation, maybe more than any challenge that the international community faces today is global by definition. There's no such thing as one country solving it on its own. We are certainly we're very well aware of that. I think we are taking the lead in the Middle East uh, on that front, uh, but we absolutely need to work very closely with our neighbors uh, as well. That's a great point. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Fahad Nazar, who serves as the spokesperson for the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., and our topic is Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, Fahad, let's, if we could, shift over to sort of the security situation. This is National Security This Week, after all. Uh, I love talking about the politics and the economics of things, but uh, it's a security-focused uh, show. Uh, what, sure. what is the security situation inside the kingdom? How, how does Saudi intelligence and political leadership view potential threats uh, from within? I, and I ask that because here in the United States, uh, our own Federal Bureau of Investigation has indicated they are deeply concerned about far-right, uh, violent extremist, uh, anti-government groups. Uh, does, does Saudi Arabia, the political leadership, have equivalent concerns about things inside Saudi Arabia? So I think the threat from extremist is again it's a it's global in nature but sure. you know going back several decades at, at this point we did at some point um we did face a threat uh, a national security threat from extremists and militant groups affiliated with uh, with al-qaeda and then isis but saudi arabia again adopted a zero tolerance policy when it comes to militant violent extremist terrorist groups so again we adopted a multi-track approach that we had we implemented a security campaign to go after these terrorists and militants if they were based in in the kingdom uh so we arrest we arrested hundreds over the years uh at the same time we made sure and then this is an area one of many areas where we work very closely with the united states on we made sure that funding for international terrorist groups is, uh, is stopped completely. So we are at the forefront 
of the efforts to uh, stop and make sure that terrorist groups, extremist groups, anywhere in the world do not have the funding that uh, is necessary for them to conduct their terrorist attacks or to recruit followers. And again, this is an area where we work very closely with the United States on. At the same time, we have made sure that our religious institutions, our educational institutions are there, that there's nobody in, in a position of, um, of authority in any of these institutions that, that holds extremist ideologies and, uh, you know, passes it on to our youth. So, uh, you know, we've worked on multiple tracks and, uh, you know, at this point, I can honestly say that, you know, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or, you know, militants or extremist groups of any sort have absolutely no resonance or appeal in Saudi Arabia. I think the overwhelming majority of Saudis, especially young Saudis, are true believers in what we're doing. We are offering them opportunities. I mean, young Saudi men and women today have an opportunity to advance in the whether public or private sector faster than any time in the past. As we expand our economy, there are new jobs being created, jobs in the IT sector, in housing, in logistics, in entertainment, in tourism. You know, there is, people are very hopeful in Saudi Arabia. Um, again, it's a predominantly young population. People see what is happening. They see the changes. They see the options that they now have, not just in terms of career, but even just in terms of having, you know, uh, leisurely, um, you know, events to attend, you know, for many years, these options were not there, but it's really emblematic of, of the excitement of the moment. You know, just a, a few weeks ago, we have something called the Riyadh season, which is a multi week long kind of a festival of events and, and uh, concerts and sporting events. And that I believe uh, DJ Khaled was there and uh, Pitbull was there and like hundreds of thousands of Saudis and non-Saudis were in the middle of Riyadh uh, celebrating this moment, attending these various events, many of them working um, you know, at these various events, welcoming people from all over the world to visit Saudi Arabia. This is a very exciting, hopeful moment uh, in the kingdom for sure. But I think, and you know, I obviously follow developments in some of our neighboring countries around the world, in the region, uh, in the Arab world specifically. But I think there's hope world. I mean, just look at what Morocco did yesterday in the World Cup. Right. <laughs> um, and that's really the World Cup. I mean, people say, yeah, it's a sporting event, but I think it's, uh, it's emblematic, again, of the, of the potential and the promise uh, of the Arab world. Incidentally, the Saudi team did very well in beating Argentina as well earlier. I, I, I agree. I was just going to comment on that <laughs> uh, with, with the World Cup taking place right across uh, your border with your neighboring nation of uh, Qatar. So, uh, Fahad, thank you for covering that topic. I, I know it's always kind of hard to talk about uh, internal challenges in our in our countries. Uh, no, I know no, no, when, no. I, when I talk to my fellow Americans about the challenges we have here in our in our inside America, it's you know everybody gets a little. Uh, a, a little heightened about it, uh, but but this discussion kind of brings me to the regional regional situation all around the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've seen rising competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, for regional influence o over the past few decades. Uh, much much like Saudi Arabia, Iran has had a a significant population growth 
About 75% of their country population is also, I think, under the age of 35 or 40. Uh, so you have very similar uh, challenges there with regards to the age group of, of your, the majority of your population. I think you could even say that, uh, that Turkey and Egypt have also uh, been seeking much greater influence across the broader uh, Middle East uh, over the last uh, decade, for sure. I don't want you. I don't want to put you on the spot. I know you're the spokesperson, uh, and but I don't want you. I don't want to cause a diplomatic row for uh, for Saudi Arabia. Uh, but these other three countries, uh, Turkey, Egypt, and and Iran, they are competitors for regional influence. Uh, how does the kingdom see the broader Middle East security situation right now? Right. So Saudi Arabia enjoys good or excellent relations not only with our neighbors, but with uh, really countries around the world. So we work very closely with, certainly we have excellent relations with all our neighboring countries, you know, in the Gulf and beyond, uh, including Egypt, but we also work very closely with the United States, France, the UK. We're developing relations, strengthening newer relations like with countries like, uh, you know, India, uh, China and others. So. When it comes to Iran, I mean, there's there's no reason for Saudi Arabia and Iran not to have good relations. And again, we have excellent relations with every other country in the world. However, for that to happen, I think Iran does need to change course and to, um, you know, adhere to the same norms and laws of the international community. Specifically, it does need to stop its interference in the domestic affairs of its neighbors. And it also does need to stop its support of various militant non-state actors, uh, not just in the region, but around the world. It has done that for years. So if it changes course, there's really no reason for, uh, for it not to enjoy not just good relations with Saudi Arabia, but with the rest of the, uh, of the region. So uh, like every other country in the region and the world, as you already said, Iran does have a great history, a great culture, uh, great potential, great you know people. Again, a young population, but they really do need to uh, to uh, course correct or change uh, change course. We are we are holding talks with Iran to see if there's a way forward, but I think our concerns about their policies have been shared with the United States for sure, but also shared with our neighbors for for decades. At this point, we're hoping that. You know they will uh, they will make uh, the necessary changes. Egypt is one of our closest neighbors. We have an excellent excellent relationship uh, with them, and we are investing in some key sector of the Egyptian economy. We also have good relations uh, with Turkey. It's an important country uh, regionally and and beyond. So uh, really, the, the kingdom works uh, with you know with on multiple fronts. We work with the United Nations and its various bodies. Um, to try to, uh, you know, find solutions to a lot of the, the issues, the challenges that the international communities faces, and many of which are global in nature, as I said earlier. Uh, Fahad, we're going we're to take just a brief uh, break uh, for a minute to uh, identify our, our sponsor for the show, the Cybersecurity Summit, and we'll be back in uh, just about a minute. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, the Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. 
The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. Fahad Nazar, I'd like to continue on the security discussions for the third segment of our show. Uh, and I'd like to stay with Iran, if I could, for a while. We, we started discussing that topic. Uh, you're in Washington, D.C. You know very well that uh, Iran is a uh, significant concern for political leadership here in America. Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, the situation in Iran. Iran has been pursuing a nuclear program for some time now. It's hard to be certain where they're at in that program because there really aren't very good mechanisms in place uh, internationally to monitor Iran's nuclear program. Uh, if Iran were to develop a nuclear weapon, uh, as opposed to simply creating a nuclear power program, uh, the weapons program seems likely based on the type of program they've been pursuing, frankly. What, what challenge are, challenges are there for Saudi Arabia if the outcome is a nuclear-armed Iran? Is, is that of great concern to Saudi Arabia? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but as you said, this is a great concern to the international community more broadly. So, you know, when it comes to the JCPOA specifically, Saudi Arabia supports any measure that ensures that Iran does not possess uh, nuclear weapons or the technology to develop, develop them. So when the uh, JCPOA was agreed to in 2015, I mean, it's ultimately Saudi Arabia did support it. However, we've always had some concerns and reservations about the agreement as it was put forth. So we had concerns about the sunset clauses mm -hmm. uh, that were part of the agreement that essentially render it temporary in nature. And we thought that this should be something uh, more permanent. We had concerns about the fact that the missile development program was not part of the conversation. And we feel that it is it should be because it is linked to the uh, to the nuclear uh, file and the development program. And, and I think just as importantly, we, we've had concerns and continue to have concerns that the GACPOA uh, back then uh, did not take into account what, uh, what I spoke about earlier, which is Iran's support of militant non-state actors um, in the region and beyond. We thought that this has to be a you know, a holistic conversation that takes all of these issues into account. Um, so, but uh, yeah, to go back to your uh, to your question, absolutely, I think uh, a nuclear Iran would be extremely destabilizing. And, uh, you know, for us in the kingdom, nothing, uh, you know, our number one priority is making sure that our uh, country and our people are as safe and secure as possible. So we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that's the case. Do you have any concerns uh, about other nations in the region perhaps taking action to prevent Iran from uh, breaking out, as they say, with the nuclear program? I mean, we can't, you know, this is, uh, I'd rather not uh, speculate about what other na nations might or might not do. We've made our views very clear about our concerns about what Iran is doing regarding its uh, enrichment activities, especially in recent months. They've already, the uh, level of uranium en enrichment has already exceeded uh, civilian usage. So that's obviously, that's been uh, something that we expressed our concerns about. And, and again, this, our ex uh, reservations and concerns are not just, you know, ours alone. This, these views, these concerns 
are shared by the United States. They're shared by some of our closest uh, neighbors in the region. They're shared by some our, uh, with uh, our uh, European partners. So, you know, Iran has to take these concerns of essentially the entire international co community seriously. Uh, and I have one last follow-up question on Iran, and then I want to shift over to, to, to Yemen. But uh, we've seen some extraordinary uh, demonstrations in Iran over the past couple of months, uh, driven by young people. Uh, what what does Saudi Arabia make of uh, of the movement in Iran right now to uh, push back against uh, some of the restraints that have been on society for quite some time? Right. So I mean, it's always unfortunate when uh, when you have uh, you know violence and turmoil anywhere. So, but you know, one of our pillars of our foreign policy is not to interfere in the domestic affairs of other countries. So, um, you know, we're uh, we're obviously watching uh, what's happening in Iran. What we can, what we can, all we can do is we're really just focused on on the kingdom. Again, as I mentioned at the outset, we have. Uh, a fairly sizable and young population. All of our energies are basically focused on making sure that they have every tool at their disposal to uh, succeed and to be able to compete with their uh, peers around the world. We do maintain, obviously, good relations with uh, with our neighbors, with our partners, the United States, the UK, France, and others. And, um, you know, Iran, again, we're, we're hoping that uh, certainly when it comes to its foreign policy, that Iran does shift course. And, um, you know, and, and maybe, you know, as they shift course and, and stop their support to some of these militant elements around the world, that they will focus their attention to, uh, you know, to some of their domestic, uh, the domestic scene inside Iran, because obviously the people there have, uh, you know, they're crying out for, for change, it seems. Yeah. Uh, on the kingdom of Saudi Arabia's southern border, there's a there's a crisis situation that's been ongoing for a number of years now, and, and that situation is in Yemen. Uh, can you explain to our listeners how the kingdom of Saudi Arabia views the struggle uh, inside Yemen between the Yemeni government and, and the Houthis? Uh, perhaps you could also outline who the Houthis are and why they are concerned to the Saudi uh, political leadership. Right. So Saudi Arabia is really doing everything it can to restore peace and stability to Yemen. Um it has proposed a comprehensive peace initiatives that uh, included a nationwide uh, ceasefire. Um, but uh, as you said, Saudi Arabia did not start this war. It never wanted it. It was a war of uh, necessity, not a war of choice. Uh, the Yemen's, Yemen's internationally recognized government formally requested our assistance as the Houthis, which is a militant Iranian-backed uh, militia, essentially tried to impose its will by force on the rest of Yemen. So our involvement back in 2015 in the conflict has received the uh, near unanimous support of the United Nations Security Council. Having said all of that, we believe that this conflict can only be resolved through a political solution. And again, we are working very closely with the United Nations Yemen envoy to try to find a political resolution. We've hosted various Yemeni factions uh, in Saudi Arabia over the years to see if there's a way forward to, uh, to reach a political solution. We're also working very closely with the United States on trying to restore uh, peace and stability. At the same time, 
Saudi Arabia is the uh, top provider of humanitarian assistance to Yemen. I believe that the figure now is $20 billion, and that's a billion with a B over the past six years. Uh, this humanitarian assistance has been in the form of assistance to internally displaced people, assistance to um, uh, to schools, to um, hospitals, assistance to the central bank. Um, we've even begun providing assistance to help rebuild certain areas of of, uh, of Yemen that are more stable than others. So we've there's a the King Salman um, Center for Humanitarian Relief and Assistance has already provided billions of dollars to build uh, schools and hospitals and uh, power plants. So, you know, we're doing everything we can, but ultimately this conflict began when this militant armed militia, um, which is not all that different than, you know, other terrorist groups like uh, Hezbollah or frankly even ISIS and Al-Qaeda. You know, it's it's a sectarian militant group that uh, has it in for, you know, uh, is essentially not only at war against Saudi Arabia, it's at, certainly at war against the people of Yemen. And in some ways, again, it's a, a militant group that wants to operate outside the confines of the international community. So we, we can have that on our border. We will do everything we can that our people are, are safe. And because over the past six years, uh, this militant group, again, non-state actor, has lobbed over, I believe, 500 uh, missiles at Saudi Arabia, including they've targeted our civilian institutions, they've targeted our energy institutions, a couple of airports, especially in the in the south. Um, in addition to, I think at this point, they've launched over a thousand uh, drone attacks, again, uh, targeting our civilian institutions, airports, uh, power plants, uh, water plants, you name it. So. Uh, I think you'll agree with me that uh, that's not an acceptable scenario. I mean, just imagine if the United States had a, mili a non-state militant actor across its border in one of its you know, neighboring countries that had access to ballistic missiles and the increasingly more sophisticated drone technology that, uh, as you know, probably better than I, I mean, the, the drone, the threat from the national security threat from drones uh, it's a new technology. It's a technology that is becoming more sophisticated. But, you know, as far as I, I know, even, you know, the, the most sophisticated, um, you know, security infrastructure in the world would still find it a challenge to uh, to repel such attacks. So, you know, we're working with our partners and we're continuing to talk to, uh, certainly we're continuing to support the Yemeni government uh, to hopefully bring this conflict to an end soon. Yeah, and you, and you framed it well. You, you have to achieve a political solution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and military actions are designed, uh, if they're done well, uh, to achieve a certain set of conditions that allow the diplomats to take over to achieve a diplomatic uh, end state, a peaceful diplomatic end state. Uh, Fahad, I'd like to turn a little bit to uh, a, a security situation that actually involves economics and energy specifically. Uh, we've already mentioned uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a global leader uh, in uh, energy resources, oil, oil and gas uh, to be specific. Uh, you mentioned earlier the dedicated work being done in Saudi Arabia to diversify the economy and to combat climate change. Uh, in the news just a couple of months ago, just ahead of our midterm elections, 
uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, and really this is OPEC Plus, uh, chose to reduce oil production, which in turn drove up uh, fuel prices around the globe. O oil is a uh, it's part of the, the global uh, supply-demand market. It's a commodity, so it's traded globally. So there's, uh, there's cost uh, on a global scale when there's less uh, supply. Uh, in the most recent OPEC Plus meeting, uh, I, I think it just took place over the last weekend, uh, the decision was made to continue forward with that reduced level of production, which is, I guess, roughly about 2 million barrels of output per day. Uh, what was Saudi Arabia's reasoning behind reducing production at a time when the global markets have already kind of been in a bit of an upheaval due to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, and many nations are choosing to boycott Russian oil uh, to try and punish Vladimir Putin's government uh, more effectively, uh, deny them the revenue they need to pay for this war in Ukraine. Right. So Saudi Arabia has played a, a central role in stabilizing global energy markets for decades. Uh, it did it for decades uh, as a member of OPEC. More recently, we've been doing it as a member of OPEC plus, which is a grouping of 23 oil producing nations. We have always supported production levels that uh, take into account the, not only the concerns of oil producers, but also oil consumers as well as oil investors. So um, there's been an expectation, I think over the years for both oil exporters, as well as importers for Saudi Arabia to lead in the space. And we have, we believe that the agreement that Saudi Arabia uh, helped put into place back in April of 2020, the OPEC Plus agreement has brought much needed stability to oil markets. So, you know, looking back at uh, the decision that you referred to in October. So this again, this was a unanimous decision agreed to by all member nations. And uh, it was based on market fundamental market fundamentals, excuse me, we believe that there were certainly indications that there was an oil glut, that the global economy was slowing down. And, you know, two months out, um, oil prices have actually decreased, not insignificantly since that decision. Uh, and in fact, it was, uh, you know, even the, the White House has uh, tweeted on Twitter uh, as recently as a couple of days ago, that um, gasoline prices in the United States have continued to drop uh, and to decrease going back, you know, for, for several weeks back at this point. So, uh, and I think the fact that certainly that crude prices have not increased as some people had uh, predicted, I think certainly uh, justifies our, uh, our decision. And then again, it was a decision purely based on economics and uh, uh, and looking back again at where price is today, uh, again, at significant, significantly less than it was, uh, you know, uh, prior to that decision or uh, compared to that decision, I think really shows that we made the right call. Yeah, the, the uh, global oil and oil uh, market is a, <laughs> a hyper complex uh, economic uh, equation. Uh, so many different things to deal with. It, it impacts uh, global economy. Uh, without question and trying to find that right balance between where the production levels need to be. So you stabilize the price of oil. So you stabilize the supply 
uh, of gasoline to global markets so it drives the economy. It's a really difficult thing uh, to get right, especially when you have all these disruptions to the markets like COVID and then the follow on the uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine, which uh, which really impacted things uh, on, on global scale. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Fahad Nazar, who serves as the spokesperson for the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., and our topic is Saudi Arabia. Uh, Fahad, we have about 15 minutes or so left in our show this morning. I'd like to finish on another sort of a broader security discussion topic. Uh, if I may, let me map this out for uh, for you and for our audience. If one looks at a map with Saudi Arabia and then considers the situation in many of your neighboring nations, I, I think if if the United States faced the same situation that Saudi Arabia does, it would give all of us a pause. We've already discussed the situation in Yemen, uh, but across the Red Sea, Somaliland seems fairly stable, but Somalia is still dealing with a very real internal security threat of al-Shabaab. Uh, Somalia's neighbor, Ethiopia, uh, is dealing with uh, multiple internal struggles, including the Tigrayan conflict, which may or may not have come to uh, an end. But there are other uh, internal uh, conflicts inside Ethiopia as well. Sudan has been facing internal threats to stability. Uh, Egypt seems secure, but there are always sort of security challenges for uh, the Egyptian political leadership uh, sort of simmering just below the surface. Uh, the People's Republic of China has a military base in Djibouti. That might not concern Saudi Arabia so much, but it certainly concerns the United States and certainly the, the United States Navy uh, because there's influence that the People's Republic of China is exercising in the region. Uh, Libya uh, in northern Africa is still struggling to define and establish a, a truly stable national government. Uh, Israel is still dealing with internal threats and the conflict with uh, Hamas, uh, as well as uh, threats from Hezbollah, which is uh, supported strongly by, by Iran, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, Lebanon has to deal with the influences of Iran and, and Hezbollah. The Kingdom of Jordan is uh, equally squeezed in the neighborhood, and His Royal Highness King Abdullah II has been working tirelessly to keep things under control while providing uh, extraordinary humanitarian assistance to millions of refugees in, in uh, his nation. Uh, Syria is still in conflict with multiple influences, uh, Islamic State, uh, Kurdish forces seeking safe havens, Russian influence with the mercenary forces known as the Wagner Group, and uh, Bashar al-Assad remains in power and continues a campaign to uh, subdue any resistance in his country. Uh, Iraq is still sort of struggling. Uh, they're being pulled into Iran's orbit uh, while also working feverishly to be a good neighbor to Saudi Arabia. And finally, we, we mentioned earlier, uh, Turkey under President Erdogan has invested a great deal into his military, into his foreign policy efforts, and Erdogan is pushing for greater uh, Turkish influence around the region. So Saudi Arabia is kind of surrounded by some pretty significant security challenges. How, how does Saudi Arabia view this? Uh, you've mentioned you have good relations with everybody, but I have to think there are great concerns in the in the kingdom about what's happening around the Middle East. Right, so Saudi Arabia's foreign policy is actually fairly consistent. So we work very closely with, uh, we, we believe that a lot of the challenges that we face, that the international community faces are global in nature and require global solutions. So we, more often than not, we work with our partners, uh, both in the region and beyond, to address some of these challenges. So whenever possible, we're supportive of collective multilateral efforts, especially if they are under the auspices of the United Nations. So we work very closely with the various UN envoys to uh, 
to Yemen, to Libya, to uh, to Syria, to try to stabilize uh, some of these countries. Uh, and again, um, we are consistent in the sense that we support uh, state institutions across the region and beyond. We are opposed to any non-state actors, militant groups of any sort, as we see from maybe the prime example of a a non-state actor, a militant non-state actor that has really brought a lot of, uh, you know, ruin and and uh, destruction to a country is Hezbollah in Lebanon. They've existed for many, many years. Lebanon, like every other country in the region and most likely in the world, is a great country. It's a beautiful country with an amazing people, a great history. But you have this militant terrorist group that has uh, obviously uh, launched wars against some of its neighboring countries. It has brought, it has con controlled even its economy. It has uh, refused to give up its uh, weapons. Um, so that's the model that we are making sure does not take place in Yemen. And I already spoke a little bit about that. But, you know, without commenting individually about all the various countries that you mentioned, but, you know, in addition to uh, to working with the United Nations, to working with the United States, to try to uh, to find and uh, push forth political resolutions to some of these uh, issues. We do have good bilateral relations with most of the countries you uh, you mentioned. So our essentially neighbors on the other side of the Red Sea, um, you know, whether it's uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, um, we are well aware that they do face some uh, some challenges. Some of them are economic, some are political. And in terms of we've worked with uh, with these countries, we've actually, there's a Red Sea grouping uh, that was formed, I believe last year that brought some of these countries together to make sure that countries that border the Red Sea uh, work together, that, that, that they cooperate, that there's a level of economic cooperation and, and see how we can politically and economically uh, assist some of these nations that do face, as you said, some threats from uh, non-state actors, whether it's uh, Somalia is a primary example, but there are others. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, Saudi Arabia does, the fact that we do enjoy excellent or good or excellent relations with the majority, overwhelming majority of countries around the world has also meant that whenever possible, we have offered to mediate between conflicting or opposing parties. So we have a pretty good track record that goes back certainly all the way back to uh, in 1990, when we played a, a central important role in bringing the Lebanese civil war to an end. Uh, that had been raging for about 15 years. It was finally brought to an end in Taif, the Taif Agreement. The Taif is a city in Saudi Arabia, where again, all the various factions uh, gathered and uh, finally brought that conflict to an end. More recently, we played an important role in helping broker a peace agreement between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Again, two countries that had had, uh, you know, a, a conflict for uh, going back uh, decades. And even as we speak, Saudi Arabia has offered to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. We have uh, maintained an open channel of communication uh, with the leadership in Ukraine, with President Zelensky, but also with uh, President Putin. We have made it clear to both of them that uh, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, the way forward is a political resolution. Obviously, this conflict has brought 
a lot of pain and suffering to the heart of Europe. It has also had a very negative impact of, on the global economy. It's had a, a negative impact on energy security and certainly food security. So we've uh, we've made an offer to mediate between the two. That offer is still on the table. So. You know, whenever possible, Saudi Arabia does try to lead. And I, I think we've led on multiple fronts. I've already spoken about our leadership role when it comes to stabilizing international energy markets. But, um, you know, even when it, during COVID, uh, as it happens, back in 2020, uh, Saudi Arabia was the president of the G20 organization. And so in March of that year, we held and organized what I believe was the first virtual summit of G20 leaders to make to basically galvanize international communities' attention and to make sure that we are all cooperating and working collectively to uh, address what was obviously the biggest public health challenge in uh, you know centuries or certainly decades. And Saudi Arabia provided. 500 million dollars uh, back then to the various international efforts that were um, geared towards uh, you know coming up with the therapeutics with vaccines uh, and diagnostics and I, I think those efforts really go a long way towards uh, the progress that the international community has made and and hopefully you know I'm a little superstitious when it comes to things like this so I don't want to <laughs> jinx it and say we're completely over COVID-19, but we've certainly made uh, great progress. So, you know, long story short, whenever possible, Saudi Arabia will lead uh, the international, the region for sure, but the international community, if need be, uh, to try to, uh, you know, come up with the solutions to some of these global challenges. Uh, so, Fahad, we have a, we have about uh, six minutes or so left this morning. I, I always try to give my guests uh, the last word on the show. Uh, what haven't I asked you today that I should have asked you? Or what else would you like to tell our listeners about your country, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Uh, the, the floor is yours. Right. So, I mean, we didn't discuss uh, Saudi-U.S. relations too much. So uh, if you don't, I mean, we spoke a little bit about the economic dimension of it, and that's important. But, uh, you know, if you don't mind, I'll spend, you know, a little bit of time. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh talk about that, obviously, as a spokesperson of the Saudi embassy uh, in the United States. So, you know, Saudi-U.S. relations are longstanding. They have endured, not only have they endured, but they have continued to strengthen and to broaden and to deepen going back almost 80 years uh, at this point. In many ways, they are multidimensional. I already spoke about the economic component. I spoke a little about the political component, but there's also a military dimension that not only includes regular military training between our armed forces. But, you know, I think it's worth remembering that Saudi Arabia and the United States have fought not one, but two wars side by side. The first time was back in 1990-91, when we expelled Saddam Hussein's invading troops from Kuwait. More recently, in 2014, when again we joined the United States in its campaign, it was an international campaign against the terrorist group ISIS to expel that group from uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, at the same time, I think there's an important, sometimes overlooked dimension to this relationship, which is the people to people component of the relationship. So as we speak, there's an estimated 30,000 Saudi students uh, in the United States. Now they're all here 
to attain a formal education. But at the same time, a lot of them are using some of their spare time to give back to their local communities. So they're volunteering at schools, at hospitals, at retirement communities. Uh, some Saudi-led student groups have actually helped various American communities recover from natural disasters. I think the most recent that I can think of was back when uh, Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, mm. hit the Houston area a few years ago. There were at least two, maybe three student-led organizations that literally traveled from wherever their base is to Houston and literally helped uh, some Americans re rebuild their homes. And I think this is a, a testament to an indication of the uh, of the depth uh, and the strength of uh, this relationship. A lot of these Saudis who, uh, who go to school in the United States do two things. One, they, uh, they establish these long-term friendships and they consider Americans, their American peers, their American neighbors to be an extended part of the, uh, you know, their family. And when they go back to Saudi Arabia, they become their, your biggest advocates. At the same time, I've seen it on the other side of that equation where again, Americans, and there's an estimated, I believe 70,000 Americans currently living and working in Saudi Arabia. And the Americans who've lived and visited Saudi Arabia, by and large, and have you know spoken to many, many of them over the years. Not only that, but I've actually had the the privilege of accompanying some American delegations uh, to the kingdom. I think I mentioned this at the outset. Uh, and again, uh, almost with no exceptions, uh, Americans who go to Saudi Arabia leave with a favorable impression. I think they all realize that you know, we have a lot more in common, that we have differences. And when they come to the United States, they're often very kind and generous in, in their praise and um, of, uh, of Saudi people and what's happening in the kingdom. So, you know, this is, um, this is a relationship that has uh, withstood the test of time and I think will endure well into the future. Well said, sir. Well said. Uh, unfortunately, we've come to the uh, the end of today's edition of uh, National Security This Week. Uh, Fahad Nazar, this has been a, a truly fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you for telling us about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I'm certain our, our listeners have much to consider after hearing you this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and I hope we can uh, do this uh, again. All right. Uh, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.